Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. This divide between democracies and autocracies is is getting deeper, in particular between the US and China. So how do we cooperate with them on climate while competing with them geopolitically? And, you know, there is hope. We, we, we managed to cooperate on economic things like manufacturing iPhones. So, you know, I've got my iPhone here and it was manufactured in China. So we do manage, you know, we do manage to cooperate in some areas, even as we compete in others. And the question is, how do we get climate into that category? The battle for the soul of work, decarbonization, democracy versus autocracy, space races, Olympic protests, the pandemic's end game. Just some highlights of The Economist magazine's World Ahead 2022 special issue. Stay tuned. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salman and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to others. And follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FullDRadio. Joining me from London is Tom Standage. He's deputy editor of The Economist and editor of The World Ahead Issue 2022. We've uh, enjoyed doing these going back several years, looking back and kind of the, the crystal ball of the great magazine in the UK. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Great, great. I want to quote from your essay from the editor. If 2021 was the year the world turned the tide against the pandemic, 2022 will be dominated by the need to adjust to new realities both in areas reshaped by the crisis, the new world of work, the future of travel, and as deeper trends reassert themselves, the rise of China, accelerating climate change, and herewith, as you say, 10 themes and trends to watch in the year ahead. But before we get into that, how do you even wrap your head around our times? Uh, We've talked about this before, a booming stock market, unhappiness with the economy and the kind of the drip drip of the Delta variant and COVID is, is not quite snuffed out yet, even though we had vaccines uh, what, what, if you had three or four words to describe this, this interregnum, what would it be? Oh uh, yeah, it is a pretty, um, it is a pretty strange time, isn't it? Because on the one hand, we do have this very rapid rebound. The jobs numbers in the US last week, you know, included those revisions to previous months. And so, uh, actually it's even better than it looked, but at the same time, you know, there is the Delta variant is still out there, even in countries like Britain, where you've got a very large number of people vaccinated, you know, there's still a large number of cases, not so many deaths. That's, that's the great news here that places like Britain and Israel really do seem to have broken the link between, um, between cases and deaths. And so we have a much smaller number of um, of deaths each week than we did this time last year when we had a, another you know peak and another similar uh, number of cases and obviously that's not the case in uh, in the US where you know you have had this you have had this big peak and you've had a, a you've had a lot of deaths associated with that but yes it is weird because you do have these sort of uh, indicators pointing in, in different directions but I think the signs are that uh, we will be able to get mm. on top of the uh, of the of the virus quite well in 2022 there's new treatments coming you know these new um, antiviral 
oral pills, which I think will be uh, will be very effective. We're also going to get new vaccines that you can take by uh, you know breathing them in or skin patches or things like that. We may get vaccines that are effective against multiple variants and against multiple uh, respiratory diseases. So I think you know the, the, there's good news coming, uh, more good news coming in 2022 on that front. You know, when you talk about your first bullet, democracy versus autocracy, you write that as President Joe Biden tries to rally the free world under the flag of democracy, his dysfunctional, divided country is a poor advertisement for its merits. Uh, I've listened to, you know, this great economist podcast on on U.S. democracy, and it was Fasman and, and some others discussing how the Senate, the U.S. Senate, is kind of structurally built to be gamed by one party that uh, it's actually very gloomy for the Democrats. Even if Joe Biden were to rally his approval rating, it's almost fait accompli that they're going to lose the, the House and the Senate by many seats in 2022. And you're going out there and trying to pitch the importance of diversity and inclusion and a big tent party to the rest of the world. Uh, people like the ruler of Hungary, or you can go into the Uzbekistan areas and obviously China. And yet at home, you have a significant chunk of, of the opposition party that believes you were illegitimately elected. Yes, I think we're, what the trend that we're putting our finger on for next year is this contrast between democracy, not just in the US, but predominantly in the US, and autocracy, not just in China, but predominantly in China. Because we are going to have this very interesting contrast towards the end of 2022, where in the US, we're going to have the midterms, and we know what happens in midterm elections. The, uh, you know, the ruling party uh, tends to lose quite badly. And, you know, that's a very common pattern, and we have lots of reason to believe that's going to happen to the Democrats in 2022. Um, and you know they'll they'll uh, almost certainly lose the House, and and um, you know they may lose the House and the wafer thin uh, hold they had on the on the Senate as well. But the striking contrast is going to be with China, because in China the Communist Party Congress, which has, happens also at the end of next year, is essentially going to crown Xi Jinping um, to remain in power, sort of like an emperor, uh, probably for life, certainly for for another five or ten years and essentially you've got these two very different systems which have a lot of you know the same issues they both want economic growth they both want social stability they both want to deal with the pandemic they're both worried about the power of big tech companies and they're obviously going about um, their response to all of these things in very different ways. If you're an autocracy, um, you know, China has this zero COVID um, approach. They are trying to suppress the virus altogether. And, um, you know, you get one person at a, at a company, you know, test positive, they they close the whole company. And well, they they uh, they send everybody home. And, and you know, they'll, they'll shut down in whole cities when they have a handful of cases and, and so forth. So they are they're able to take these very different um, approaches to things. You look at tech regulation. You know, Xi Jinping has clobbered lots of tech firms this year. Has wiped about one and a half trillion dollars in value off their stock market values because he thinks that they are mucking around with what he regards to be trivial technologies like sort of video games and internet shopping. And he would much rather that they focused on things like semiconductors and AI and robotics and stuff that he thinks will be kind of more useful strategically and geopolitically in the future. So you do have this very much a sense that um, that both systems are saying, look, our way of doing things is better. And, uh, you know, it's it's clear who's in charge in an autocracy and the, the central government can dictate the direction of things like the tech industry and it can suppress the, uh, the vaccine more efficiently. And, you know, never mind human rights and all that. That's not, you know, 
they're not concerned about that. And then uh, democracies are saying, well, hang on a minute. Um, we think this is not the way to do things. And we think uh, human rights do matter. Thank you very much. But the problem is that uh, democracies at the moment and America as the world's leading democracy, you know, look like they're in a real mess. I mean, America is obviously very divided, you know, quite a lot of uh, social unrest, uh, instability, you know, concern about the sort of thing that happened in January the 6th. Are we going to get a repeat of that? Uh, and, you know, people seem to be prepared to, I mean, it's clear that a lot of uh, supporters of Donald Trump love Donald Trump more than they love democracy itself. And, uh, and democracy is less important to them than winning. And so, that's a very worrying situation. And Joe Biden has, has you know, spelled this out and said it's not enough for democracy to survive. We have to show that it's better than autocracy. Um, but at the moment, America is not a, a good advertisement for that. And so we're going to have this very, very striking contrast between these two systems um, in late 2022. And I think it's a, it's a sort of prism through which to view an awful lot of other things that are happening next year in everything from trade to technology regulation to vaccinations to space stations. China's going to finish its space station next year. Again, it will show that that um, shows that it's a it's a superpower. I think one of the things to watch for is that this way that Xi Jinping has clobbered the tech industry could have a real impact on innovation and on economic growth because it's just you know essentially he's um, you, you're seeing the CEOs of these big tech companies resigning or or retiring because they just don't want to get into the business of fighting the government and that's not going to be good for innovation in the long run for China and we may also see a, an economic slowdown next year as well because these sort of repressive um, lockdowns as a way of fighting the virus is also very bad economically. And so, um, so funnily enough, we, we may start to see some evidence that actually the autocratic approach does have drawbacks in, in those respects. But, you know, the problem is that, um, that the impact on innovation will probably take several years to manifest itself. So at the moment, democracy uh, looks very much on the back foot and America doesn't look like a, a very good advertisement for that way of doing things. Now, what about here in the States? You talk about the new tech clash. Obviously, Facebook meta is in the crosshairs with Instagram and, and everything else. And big tech suddenly, what people are wondering if Mark Zuckerberg is trying to inoculate himself by being the head of meta, this parent company, and there can be some sort of, um, I don't know, straw man, straw woman CEO of Facebook that can go out and take the lumps from Congress. Do you think that Congress, there, there seems to be more unanimity around getting tough on tech in Congress than than there is anything else. Yes, no, absolutely. There's there's bipartisan agreement that um, that the tech companies are too powerful in America, and um, of course the Republicans think that there's sort of bias against them and that they're being censored and all this sort of thing. Actually, the evidence is the opposite, which is that the stuff that travels fastest and does best on both Twitter and Facebook tends to be a sort of incendiary right wing, you know, rhetoric. Um, so that that mm. doesn't seem to be true. But both sides are worried about this and want to rein in the tech companies. That said, they haven't really done much. I mean, that's what's so striking about the contrast in China. Xi Jinping can just pull the plug on an IPO of a of a big Chinese company. He can he can ban video games during the week for school children. You know he can just do these things. And obviously, you know the U.S. president cannot do things like that. I think we would agree that a good thing. But you know there are all of these lawsuits that don't really seem to have even dented the profits or the market share of these big tech companies. And you know for for Facebook and Google, this is just the cost of doing business. So I think yes, um, what's happening with with the renaming of Facebook to Meta? It's you know one of the analogies people are drawing is it's a bit like what happened in the financial crisis with the bad banks, which is where you kind of put all of the dodgy assets 
into a into another company. We're seeing energy <laughs> energy companies doing this now as well. So sure. they start to they start to put some you know and uh, what Rusal, the aluminium company, is doing this too. So you you put all of the sort of climate um, the bad for climate uh, you know carbon emitting things that no one wants to invest in in a separate company and spin that off, and then that company can just be sort of managed in managed decline, and then the um, it's not a drag on the share price of the of the rest of the company that is looking forward to you know in the case of energy companies moving on to renewable energy and so on. So so you know that's a strategy we've seen in financial services, we've seen it in energy, and now we're seeing it in tech. I think with um with Facebook because essentially the fact that the Facebook brand is so tarnished won't matter if that's just one of the stable of, of apps. Uh, the you know they call it the blue app in with internally uh, to distinguish between Facebook the app and Facebook the company. And then the other thing is I think the metaverse is a you know I think there is a an interesting thing happening there if you just look at what's been happening with these sort of musical events happening inside Fortnite for example. So the Travis Scott um, concert that was last year and then this year we've had Ariana Grande doing things. Um, you know, or ABBA ABBA coming back virtually. All of this sort of well but, but I think just the, the idea that you have this collision of video games social mm. and music and that you can go you know the Travis Scott event was amazing. You basically go swimming with your friends inside your favourite song in a video game and it's sort of hard to explain to people who haven't seen it but I think there is a I think there's a there there and I also think that you know working in this sort of environment and um, in fact working out so I'm someone I have a VR headset I have the Facebook one in fact the Oculus one which they're now renaming to Meta aren't they as well so um, but you know I've been using that as a as a fitness you know device which is great so actually the Metaverse is a place to be entertained I went to a bit of a Billie Eilish gig um, you know wearing this headset last week so so i think there's a there there and i think um the danger is that people look at this rather cynical move by facebook to sort of change the subject and distract from its its problems and think well that means the metaverse is a load of nonsense and um you know it's just facebook using window dressing actually the other companies that are doing this companies like roblox you know uh, the people behind fortnite the people behind you know even minecraft is arguably you know heading in that direction you know, they've been banging on about this for years. And I think there is an interesting new sort of embodied 3D internet uh, environment coming. And I think Facebook will be just one of the companies involved in that. So I think we need to distinguish between the sort of rather rather cynical moves made by Facebook and the, the reality that there is something quite interesting taking shape. As an aside, as a kid, my father would take me to Disney World in Orlando and there, there was the General Electric Carousel of Progress. And it would show a family from the turn of the century, the 19th century to the 20th century. And it culminated in this living room scene with the the, the grandparents watching cable television and uh, a sister on the electric guitar and the small boy wearing a virtual reality headset. Now, this is a good 25, 27 years ago, wow. but perhaps we're finally getting there. I digress. Yeah, I think we're talking... they are they are <laughs> much better. Yeah, I mean, the, the new VR headsets really are. I mean, the, 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 the Quest 2 is a really fantastic piece of kit. It's very affordable. It's like $300 and it's amazing. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Tom Standage. He's deputy editor of The Economist. We're talking about the magazine's World Ahead 2022 issue. Uh, it's crystal ball that we get to around this time every year. Uh, talk to me about inflation. Uh, this is something that's existed kind of in theory uh, in Wall Street trading rooms. When I talk to people out there about prices creeping up in a kind of a that 70s, early 80s show, vicious spiral uh, way where it's kind of looked at as a runaway problem that the Federal Reserve has to come in and maybe plunge the economy into recession to save it from inflation. Is is that potentially the case here? I mean, as you write, supply chain disruptions and a spike in energy demand have pushed up prices. Central bankers say it's temporary, but not everyone believes them. 
No, exactly. And I, you know, I mean, there are reasons to, to say, well, this could just be a short term thing and we'll have high inflation in the early months of 2022. And, you know, we will probably get um, rates rising a little bit. Um, uh, certainly in, in Britain, that looks quite likely in America, probably as well next year. But that ultimately the forces that previously kept global rates and inflation low, things like demographic change, things like, you know, globalization, those forces are still there. Um, and so, you know, we can be quite relaxed about it. So there is, you know, that is a, that's the sort of mainstream view that, that that's what's happening here. Um, I think the, the country we're most worried about is Britain, because Britain does have higher prices across the board, because we're particularly uh, dependent on on natural gas for our energy and obviously gas prices have shot up and that puts the prices of of everything up and it also means that people have less money to spend on things and so there is real concern that we might see um stagflation because all of this is happening at the same time that we've left the eu and uh, we're doing a, we're trading a lot less and it's become a lot more difficult to trade with uh, with europe so that's the place that we're that we're kind of most worried about returning to a sort of 70s style wage price spiral we're less worried about it elsewhere and in fact you know the latest numbers on the on the us economy are are actually better than expected well de- so- demystif- de- demystify something for our listeners out there capital i inflation right Not the unfleeting inflation the scary one the wage price spiral they might hear their parents have stories about that. But what, what does that mean exactly? Well, a wage price spiral is just where prices rise. And so workers demand higher wages. So companies give them higher wages because they say, well, yes, prices are going up. But then when companies have to pay their workers more, then they have to charge more for the goods and services they sell. And that then contributes to more inflation. So it just it sort of feeds on itself. And that's the that's what people worry about, that um, that you end up in that in that world. And that's that's a very painful place is to that, be. Is that not the reckoning now that Starbucks can't get baristas at $12 an hour, or Chipotle can't get people to show up, has to has to throttle store hours on Sundays and Saturdays because $15 isn't doing it? Isn't it inevitable that, say, 20 or 20 more than that's going to be the wage and that's going to have to get priced down to, to customers who are ultimately going to feel it and go back and demand their own raises? Well, we don't know. I mean, it's certainly the case that workers have a lot more bargaining power than they've had in living memory for decades. Um, and it's mainly, I think, because um, you know a lot of people have either lost jobs or not been able to do their jobs um, in the past couple of years. And uh, and now they say, well, do I really want to go back, back to that job? And in particular, do I want to go back to a customer-facing job like being a barista, where I'm going to be in a confined space with people who may not be vaccinated, may may not be wearing masks, and I'm just going to catch something nasty. And uh, do I really want to go back to that? And evidently, you do have to offer people much higher wages in order to to put up with that risk. And so it is very, it has proved very difficult for restaurants and you know other service industries, hospitality, uh, to find people just because they are going to be putting people in harm's way. And wouldn't you much rather go and get a job that you could do remotely and stay at home and not have to commute and you know, people are. If you look at the the number of people applying for for jobs that can be done like that, they're, they're shooting up. And if you look at the you know, tech jobs, people retraining so that they can get jobs in tech. If you look at the fraction of programmers' jobs in America that are now listed that say you can work remotely, it's gone from fifteen percent to about ninety percent in the past wow. year. So it's absolutely assumed that you're not going to be able to. And, and we, you know. We're seeing um, enormous turnover, even in tech, because um, if you have a job a, 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 as a programmer and you, uh, you know, you're required to go into the office, even just you know two two days a week, maybe you may say, "Well, I could leave this job and I could easily get another job doing the same thing, um, where I wouldn't have to go into the office at all." And so, well, Tom, th- that that brings me to the future of work. You say there's a broad consensus that the future is hybrid, and that more people will spend more days working from home. 
but there is much scope for disagreement on the details. How many days and which ones? And will it be fair? Uh, Surveys show that women are less keen to return to the office, so they may risk being passed over for promotions. Debates also loom over tax rules and monitoring of remote workers. I'm hearing from uh, workers specifically on the incremental costs. Yes, you might not be spending as much on fuel or uh, train fare for the long commute in the morning, and you can go straight from, you know, taking your kids to the bus right to the computer. But who is going to capture the dividends of those savings? For example, I, I know I'm taking you into a little bit of detail here. If a huge bank is saving on the square footage costs of real estate by shifting to a hybrid model, are they going to pocket those savings? Are they going to redistribute it back to workers? And if workers, say, want to work in a a, a cheaper city, a lower cost of living city, are they able to keep those gains in the arbitrage or is the company going to claw it back in terms of uh, absolutely this is the whole this is exactly my point which is that there is this sort of on the surface agreement that you know let's have a more let's have a hybrid approach where we don't all go into the office every day in industries where that's possible now it's worth pointing out this is this does not apply to everyone right so even in rich developed countries like britain and america only about 50 percent of the workforce can do their jobs remotely so there's an enormous number of people who can't and we as people who can do this remotely i'm at home right now and i've barely been into the office for the for the past 18 months we need to remember how lucky we are that we can do this and that it doesn't apply to everyone However, um, there is this broad consensus mm. that those of us who can remote work remotely are going to do more of it. However, as soon as you get past that, there is disagreement about how much. And what's really interesting is there's there's a disagreement between bosses and workers about how many days they should come into the office. And we're seeing this all over the place. But the industry to watch is the tech industry, because the tech industry has the workers with the most bargaining power. They're the most sought after. And Apple has literally been having this, you know, this public fight with its employees about how many days a week they're expected to go into its massive new headquarters and it's been saying you know you have to come in i think three days a week and they've been saying well that means we need to live near cupertino which is an expensive part of the world whereas if we only had to come in one or two days a week or maybe one day every two weeks then we could afford to live um somewhere further away better quality of life uh, more affordable and so on and so you know we're seeing these arguments happening there's also an interesting disconnect not just between bosses and workers but between what workers say they want and then what they do if they're mm. left to their own devices. So workers say, oh, yes, I think, you know, two de- two days a week sounds about right, working from home and then three days in the office. But at the moment, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, in a lot of countries, um, you have people who are able to work from home. They're not being compelled to come in by their employers and they're doing something much closer to one or even half a day in the office. Um, so in other words, there's a, there's a disconnect between what they say they want and what they actually do when given the choice. So you've got that to deal with. And I think that's going to be very interesting next year. And then you've got all of these arguments about things like yes you know what happens if you move to a um to a cheaper city do does your employer cut your pay some tech firms are doing that so facebook and google are cutting people's pay when they move out of the bay area which is a very expensive place to live and they go to you know a a cheaper city and so you know there's a big argument about that and what happens when you've got all of those people who work in financial services say in new york and they're not going into manhattan anymore they're staying actually outside of new york state so they're in a different state where should they be paying tax because you know officially they're employed in um, in new york state but in practice many of them are working from home full-time in one of the neighboring states and so and albany you know, albany has always been one of the most aggressive in terms of getting you know cracking down on people right. who split so there's, time so there's lawsuits underway between between states over this because you know obviously serious amounts of money are, are at stake here these are some very highly paid people who who do pay a lot of tax so these are the sorts of things so then what about monitoring of remote workers so how much surveillance is too much i mean does your employer have a right to put a piece of software on your computer 
that like takes a screen grab every minute to make sure that you're actually working uh, or measures how much you move your mouse. I mean, there's, you know, there's people figuring out how to make it look like they're working by, you know, attaching things to their mouse so that it looks like it's moving when actually it's not. I mean, it's all of this kind of stuff. So there's a, a whole load of a whole load of things. And then I think the the really a lot of that sounds trivial. I think the really, really important one is this question of fairness, because not going into the office is, you know, the people who are most keen on going back to the office are white men and everybody else we've got this amazing chart in in the uh, in the annual that shows this um everybody else so women minorities and also parents uh, so it's white men without children are particularly keen to to, uh, uh, to go back to the office everybody else doesn't want to go back to the office quite so much for various reasons so women are more likely to be involved in childcare so they prefer the flexibility of being able to work from home more often if you're you know if you're suffering racial discrimination at work or just microaggressions um not having to put up with that by going into the office is a, is evidently quite an appealing problem prospect so what this the danger here is that that forcing everyone uh, to go back into the office is unfair and then if you give people the choice then only the young white men go back into the office or disproportionate numbers of young white men go back into the office and they're then the people who hang out with the the bosses and get promoted and that's not fair and, and so what do you do about this and one of the points we make is that the the future workplace is only going to be fair if bosses engineer it to be fair so what do you do and how do you if you give everyone the choice of when to come in how do you deal with the fact that that is going to lead to potentially these unfair outcomes and how do you how do you measure what's happening because in theory you could have a much more egalitarian workforce when you've got people you know what people call a a zoomocracy and everyone is you know the same size tile um, on the screen and also in theory you could make all sorts of progress on on diversity and inequality because you could hire people from a much larger pool you don't just have to hire people who are in the city where you're hiring or can move to a city where you're hiring you can hire people in other countries you can hire people you know from other parts of the country and so in theory there's there's the opportunity to make great progress on equity and, and fairness and and diversity and inclusion and the danger is that we actually end up going in the opposite direction and we end up with workplaces that are less fair as a result of this change full disclosure stay with us this show podcast to npr1 spotify and apple podcasts at linkfulldradio.com please subscribe and rate us and recommend the show to others If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Tom Standage, editor of The World Ahead 2022, The Economist's special look-ahead issue. Tom, you you talk here halfway through crypto grows up. Like all disruptive technologies, cryptocurrencies are being domesticated as regulators tighten rules. Central banks are also looking to launch their own centralized digital currencies. The result is a three-way fight for the future of finance between the crypto blockchain decentralized finance crowd, more traditional technology firms, and central banks that will intensify in 2022. For starters, I have to ask you the meaning of life question, what the heck is crypto? No one has been able to answer it yet for me in less than 30 minutes in a oh. compelling way. Yeah. Um, well, it's a lot of things. I mean, I think the main the main clever thing about it, before you get on to like whether you should invest in Bitcoin or all the rest of it, which, you know, I would say no, <laughs> I haven't gone near it myself. But I think the, the clever thing about it is, is essentially this. We're used to the idea that digital assets, digital files are easy to copy. So if I send you a photo, you can make a thousand copies of it. And you can email it to people. We're used to the idea that digital means easy to copy, right? Unlike a physical photo. And what's clever about, um, about these blockchain-based assets is essentially that you can make unique digital items that cannot be copied. And once you can do that, you can make money. Because obviously, 
if you remember that Beavis and Butthead episode where they try to photocopy dollar bills because they're like, oh, we can just make as many as we like by <laughs> photocopying them, and it just, of course it doesn't work, right? So, so the the obviously digital money is difficult if it's if it's a digital file because you can just duplicate stuff. So, so the brilliant breakthrough with Bitcoin and with blockchains generally is that it solves the double spending problem. You can have these assets, and so they can be coins, and you can then basically make sure that if I spend a coin and I or I give it to you that you can't copy it and then give it copies of that coin to other people. There is only only one of them. So that's a that gives you the basis to make basically new currencies, cryptocurrencies. But it also gives you the basis to make these unique digital assets, so non non-fungible tokens. Um and uh, so this is being used for, for but all what sorts pain, of things. Which pain was this innovation addressing? I mean I had Venmo, I had PayPal, I don't you know, I could use credit card for the smallest of, of transactions. I take cash out of the ATM monthly simply for my barber's visit. You still use uh, cash. Okay. I mean, I haven't used no, just, cash in Just ages. for that. <laughs> oh, and for the grocery card at Aldi. I keep a quarter okay. in my car, okay, but nevertheless. Enough. Go ahead. Fair enough. No, no, I take your point. I mean, you know, certainly cryptocurrencies at the moment are terrible as substitutes for traditional money. Um, because they, you know, their transaction speed is very slow. The transaction cost is very high. Um, they're a, they're very volatile, so they're a bad store of value. Um, shops don't want to take them. I mean, you just have to look at El Salvador, where they tried to introduce crypto and Bitcoin as a currency, and you know, the the shops don't want to take it. It's a nightmare. Um, and so, you know, they are in that sense, it's an interesting financial experiment. The people who are kind of really into all of this stuff say, well, the great thing about it is that a cryptocurrency cannot be devalued by a central bank printing lots of money. And if you look at these big episodes of, you know, hyperinflation in the past in places like Zimbabwe, where the government just sort of says we need more money, so they print it and that devalues all the money in circulation. That cannot happen with Bitcoin, for example, because the number of Bitcoins that can ever be issued is fixed. And so that's the sort of rather theoretical example that people point to. In the meantime, it's essentially a massive casino and people coming into it. I mean, I really don't see why this isn't in effect a pyramid scheme. Because the people coming into the market are essentially buying these assets at very high prices, which is allowing people who are already in the market to cash out if they want to. And if the money coming in is essentially just coming in from these newcomers, then that is the definition of a pyramid of scheme. Of a Ponzi so, scheme. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm looking, so, at, I'm looking at asset class total returns. Charlie Bellello, he's great. He posted this on Twitter. Uh, Bitcoin, 2011 to 2021, annualized return 210% a year. The next best asset was the NASDAQ 100, which is, I mean, toothsome returns in 21.3% a year. The S&P 500 at 15.1% a year between 2011 and 2021. If you go down to gold, the GLD ETF, that returned 1.9% a year. Cash, 0.4% a year. I mean, this is... I can't even, I mean, you're talking a 2 million percent return over, I can't even count the number of zeros in it over several years. We've yeah, never well, that's assuming really keep, seen an asset. That's assuming it's, yeah, it keeps on going up. So, I mean, but know, what, my, my question you, to you is, you, what is like the market? If, if you like the what is the market so romancing? Then... What is the market romancing with that kind of parabolic return? Uh, well, I just well, look, if if you think that if you think that looks great um, and want to put your want to invest in it, be my guest. You know, and obviously a lot of people are doing this, and there are lots of stories of people who've who've made lots of money doing this. I think the more interesting question is what happens because this is a model for a new way of doing money, but it's not the only one. Um, mm. So you've also got the uh, the big um, you've got the kind of what we call the neo banks, the fintechs, the new companies, and you've also got the big tech firms. Uh, and you see this particularly in Asia. You get these super apps. 
where you know so alipay and um and uh, tencent with wechat um they they have these super apps that are essentially facebook like you know they're social networks you can use them for messaging you can in many cases you can use them for ride hailing and you can also use them for payments and so you know the western companies and this is something that facebook is very much trying to copy with its own digital currency which it keeps changing the name of i can't even remember what it's called now but so you you've essentially got the sort of the new the new tech companies who are trying to reinvent finance along essentially high tech lines but essentially not you know changing the the underpinnings of it that much then you've got the defi crypto blockchain crowd who are saying no we should this is an opportunity to do things in a completely different way and then you've got the central banks who are saying well hang on a minute digital coins we could just make our own digital coins it wouldn't have a blockchain um, essentially, everybody in the country would have a an account with the central bank. We could th- this would be amazingly useful because you could issue stimulus money. You could just fire it straight into people's accounts with the central bank if you gave them all an account with the central bank. You'd be able to monitor the economy very very closely. If you were mm-hmm. China, you'd be able to stop people spending money on certain things. But you'd be able to, you know, basically monitor inflation and spending and the flow of money around the economy in real time, which would be really useful. And it would also be much easier to have, say, negative interest rate policies, which, you know, we really don't know how feasible that is. A lot of banks have a lot of very old computers that might fall over if you tried to um, implement them. But if you implemented this with central bank digital currencies, you, you'd have the flexibility to have negative interest rates very easily. Um, so this is something that central banks around the world are all looking at. China has gone the furthest um, in testing this, but everyone else is talking about this. So that would be what we've seen in many, many other areas of technology, which is a new and exciting technology comes along, in this case, a cryptocurrency, and it ends up being domesticated and a version of it that sort of has some of its features, but isn't the hardcore original version comes along. So just think about how music changed. So you remember Napster, when Napster first showed up, it was this revolution. It was a jukebox in the sky. You could type in the name of any song and be listening to it a few seconds later. It was amazing. And we all just thought this is the way to consume music. Right. The big problem was it was illegal. It was based on piracy. And so what did we end up with? It showed that there was demand for that style of basically jukebox in the sky. And that's what we now have with things like Spotify and Apple Music and so on. But they had to, it took years to build a sort of legal version of that with a business model. And that's now the business model for the music industry. It, it, it shifted. So outwardly, it's very similar to what Napster offered. But, um, but of course, the underpinnings are very different. So, so in the same way that peer-to-peer sharing with Napster, and in fact, Spotify uses peer-to-peer architecture under the hood as well, which is quite funny, um, as does Skype, funnily enough, which um, mm. actually, they may have taken it out of Skype now since Microsoft took it over. But anyway, my point is this, that you get these sort of radical new technologies and people say, this is going to change everything it's going to blow up everything what actually usually happens is that a compromise is struck between this new thing and the traditional way of doing things so that you get some of the benefits but you avoid some of the drawbacks as well and i think that's what's going to happen with these digital monies in describing the climate crunch you write even as wildfires heat waves and floods increase in frequency a striking lack of urgency prevails among policymakers when it comes to tackling climate change moreover decarbonization requires the west and china to cooperate just as their geopolitical rivalry is deepening keep an eye on the solar geoengineering research team at harvard in 2022 they want to test the use of a high altitude balloon to release dust to dim sunlight a technique that may at this rate be needed to buy the world more time to decarbonize. Where is the urgency? You didn't see it at this global conference just no, now. No, exactly. That's what's so. That's what's so worrying about it. We, we, we have had one or two good things come out of COP. I think the um, you know, the the agreement on uh, the agreements on deforestation and on uh, on methane in particular. We've been banging the drum on methane for quite a while because yeah, that's is, what I wanted to. Add. Isn't that the lowest hanging fruit in all is. of this? And methane totally. capture. 
It's totally explain it is. that. Explain that. Well, so the the, I, the the crucial thing is that methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, but it's much more short lived. So when you vent methane into the atmosphere, either because it's coming out of melting permafrost or it's because it's coming out of the back end of a cow or because it's leaking, because methane is natural gas. So you often have natural gas that's released when you um, take oil out of the ground. Natural gas comes with it and it's um, it's released into the atmosphere. So the problem is that that's a much more powerful greenhouse gas, but it, it is broken down fairly quickly in the atmosphere. And CO2, by contrast, is a weaker greenhouse gas, but it essentially stays there forever. So you know most of the CO2 that we have put in the atmosphere in the last 250 years is still there. I mean, some of it's been absorbed into the sea or absorbed into plants or whatever, but essentially CO2 stays there. And what that means is when we get to net zero, we hope by the middle of the century, we haven't solved the problem. We've just stopped the problem getting worse. And at that point, we then have to start, we're going to have another big fight about, we're going to have to start taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And the big question then is how much of it do we take out? Because we then decide how much warmer we leave the earth at the end of that process. And obviously there are winners and losers come from that. So there's another massive fight coming in the second half of this century, even if we manage to get to net zero in the first half of the century. But yeah, that's the that's the big thing. Methane is, um, is a much worse problem. And so it's the easiest thing to fix now. Uh, it's one of these low-hanging fruits. And then similarly, you know, electrifying transport, road transport, electric cars, you know, we have the technology, electrifying, the, making the grid more based on renewables with solar and wind, you know, that again, we know how to do that. These are the easy bits, right? The really hard stuff is how do you remove the emissions from aviation or cement making or steel making. These are all things that produce a huge amount of uh, CO2. And um, if we're going to get to net zero, we're going to have to decarbonize it. We're still going to need steel. Maybe we're not going to need as much cement or we'll find new ways to make it. But, you know, cement is, you basically make cement by heating up calcium carbonate. And in the process, lots of CO2 comes out of it. (laughs) And that just goes into the atmosphere. And, you know, China used more cement in three years um, in the first decade of this century than America used in the whole of the 20th century. 20th century. That's a stat I can never get my head around. It's amazing, isn't it? But that is how much cement is being used. And so so those are are the big problems. Yeah. so, So it's good that we've seen uh, movement on methane and movement on deforestation from COP, but we aren't seeing the sort of radical, you know, we haven't, China is saying saying decarbonize by 2060, and then India has said by 2070, which is sort of better late than never, but, you know, that's not going to be fast enough. And, and Xi Jinping hasn't come to the COP at all. In fact, Xi Jinping hasn't left China for the last two years. So there isn't a sort of commitment uh, on the part of these big emitters. And China is the biggest emitter now. And that's is really there a tipping? Is there a tipping point for China when they realize they're being left behind technologically? I mean, after all, they are a solar manufacturing colossus now. They do add this capacity in strides that you can't imagine. They're not being high left behind rail. at all. They're not being left behind at all. They've Exactly. They've got a high-speed rail that's, system that's the envy of the world. Uh, they're the leading manufacturer of solar panels. They're, you but know, they they're, still belch in the a most, lot got, of methane and a lot of carbon. And they, you know, 2060 might not be what the world wants to see from such a carbon producing nation. What we're seeing is that um, China has always favored its own growth over dealing with climate change. And it's getting rich before you before you clean things up is, you know, and you can see why, because the, those of us in the developed world, we got rich. And then it turned out that on the on the way, we generated all this stuff that's now causing this problem of climate change. And so um, China is saying, well, why should we stay, um, you know, where we are now as a sort of middle income country and cut? Why, why should we have to make that choice? And so that, you know, when, when they 
have had to make that choice. They've always favoured growth over cutting emissions. And, you know, they think that they may be able to um, look at look at what's happening now. They're having um, power crunches now, as as we all are, because the, the rebound from the pandemic has been faster and people are you know, ordering goods from Chinese factories at a higher rate than they were. And that has put up demand for, for coal or for other fossil fuels. And so, you know, China is, is turning on coal-fired power stations. Uh, it was planning to turn off. I mean, the same has happened in Britain. We've turned on coal-fired power stations uh, that that were being mothballed, and so you know this is a this isn't just a problem for them. But uh, you know the broader question is: given that China is the biggest emitter now, how are we going to make a deal? Because um, the West is going to have to cooperate with China on this, and this is happening just as you know we talked about earlier. Um, this divide between democracies and autocracies is is getting deeper, in particular between the US and China. So how do we cooperate with them on climate while competing with them geopolitically? And you know there is hope. We, we managed to cooperate on economic things like manufacturing iPhones. So you know, I've got my iPhone here, and it was manufactured in China. So we do manage, you know, we do manage to cooperate in some areas, even as we compete in others. And the question is, how do we get climate into that category? Full disclosure: You're listening to Tom Standage of the Economist. He's editor of the magazine's World Ahead 2022 issue. Talk to me about travel trouble. You say activity is picking up as economies reopen, but countries that pursued a zero COVID suppression strategy, such as Australia and New Zealand, face the tricky task of managing the transition to a world in which the virus is endemic. Meanwhile, as much of half of business travel is gone for good. That is good for the planet, but bad for tourists whose trips are subsidized by high spending business travelers. Yeah, so travel is, you know, we've seen some travel come back this year, and we'll see more travel come back next year. But it is going to look different. And we we are seeing some quite interesting shifts. In particular, you've got some countries, I mean, China is essentially, uh, the FT called it the new hermit kingdom the other day. I mean, they really are keeping the borders closed. And they're going to keep them closed for the for the Olympics, the Winter Olympics. And that way, you know, they're not going to have any foreign spectators who might protest about things like human rights. And then the likelihood is they'll keep the borders closed until the end of 2022, actually, because you've also got this um, Chinese Communist Party Congress. And uh, so, you know, they essentially want to keep a lid on any kind of any kind of unrest and keeping the borders closed um, is you know makes it easier to do that but you've also got these countries like australia and new zealand that were pursuing zero covid suppression strategies and are now trying to transition or slowly transitioning and it's difficult because they've been telling people the importance of suppression and how valuable it is and having these really brutal lockdowns and now they're saying okay we're going to start letting people in and some of them are going to have the virus and we're just going to have to live with it um and so that means everyone has to get vaccinated and you know actually australia has has done a good job of that now but um but it was initially quite tricky to get people to take up the vaccine. And so we are seeing these different strategies that, that, that someone has, it has been called the winner's curse because those countries that did a good job of suppressing the virus um, initially uh, then found themselves in this difficult position that they sort of painted themselves into a corner um, because ultimately the future is that the, the virus will be endemic uh, rather than pandemic. It will be everywhere, um, but it won't be it won't be as dangerous um, as it is now. It will gradually, you know, we'll tame it with um, the various vaccines and with the various therapies for it. So that's the world we're heading towards. And we're also seeing some interesting innovation, particularly in, in Asia, where we're seeing um, Thailand started this, but other countries are copying it, this sandbox idea, where you kind of mm. allow tourists into some parts of the country, but not others. And then if they stay in a sandbox um, 
and they you know they haven't tested positive after two weeks then you allow them into other parts of the country as well and so you kind of use um so they've been using the island of phuket which is itself a very you know popular resort you use that as a sandbox and then you can have really really intense testing and make sure that everyone working in the hospitality industry there is vaccinated and so on um and then and then uh you know when when people if they do want to spend longer uh have shown that they're definitely not carrying the virus then you can allow them to uh to go to other parts of the country so i think we're going to see see more of that and um and you know more of these sorts of more flexible ways of dealing with the fact that we're never going to squish this virus altogether and we're going to have to learn to live with it space races you write 2022 will be the first year in which more people go to space as paying passengers than government employees carried aloft by rival space tourism firms china will finish its new space station filmmakers are vying to make movies in zero g and nasa will crash a space probe into an asteroid in a real life mission that sounds like a hollywood film do tell yes there's lots as usual there's lots going on we like you know space missions and and so on when we're trying to work out what's coming in the in the year ahead because once something is launched uh you know it, it, it's it's on a very predictable trajectory and so so this this one where they're going to crash the space probe into the asteroid that's actually not launching until later this month um, but provided the launch goes ahead on time then that impact will happen um sort of sometime around october next year and yeah it's really interesting there's an asteroid um called didymos and it has a tiny moon inevitably known as didymoon it's got it has got a it's called dimorphos i think the whole thing but um, but the idea is that if you can crash this space probe into the moon, then you can measure how that changes the orbit. And we know how big the, the asteroid and its moon are. They're not that big. And we, you know, we can estimate their mass, and by just observing them with telescopes from Earth, we can we can see how much the orbital period, so how long it takes for the Moon to go around the asteroid, changes after we've smacked it with a space probe, whose mass we also know. And so that gives us a kind of yardstick for, you know, how effective crashing space probes into asteroids is if you want to change their trajectory. Because if we did discover an asteroid on a collision course for Earth, um, we would not be trying to blow it up with you know nuclear bombs, which is what they always try and do in Hollywood films, because all that means is you've got a pile of rubble heading towards you instead of one big asteroid you actually probably want it to be um a, a single piece because then it's easier to change its trajectory either by putting a, a small ion thruster on it or maybe um, a solar sail or maybe smacking something into it and so this planetary defense area is um you know something people are very interested in and we're going to have this uh, real life test of it next year and yes we've also got rivalry again the u.s china rivalry coming up again so china is going to finish its space station next year and uh, you know that that's another you know feather in its cap that shows that it's a uh, it's as sophisticated as any other country that should that can do that um and you know this is this is something that china has been working towards it's had its own uh, astronauts it's been able to fly its own astronauts for some years now india hasn't done that yet and is getting quite close it's probably not going to be 2022 it's more likely to be 2023 that we see the first crewed mission from india but yes um this the space race is uh, is another of these sort of arenas for geopolitical rivalry and it's also of course an, uh, an arena for for commercial rivalry between these commercial space companies. So SpaceX has sent some civilians into space this year. In fact, I interviewed one of them recently, Cian Proctor, who was the head of that, um, who was the captain, um, the pilot on that mission. Um, and that was the Inspiration4 mission. But then we've also seen these suborbital flights done by Jeff Bezos' company, Blue Origin, and Richard Branson's company, um, Virgin Galactic. And so they are all hoping to fly more tourists next year, which is why we think that next year is going to be this tipping point where you have more paying passengers than government 
government employees. And then we've got these films. So the um, there was a Russian uh, uh, director and actress who went up to the space station last month uh, to shoot some footage for a film. Um, and this is going to be, you know, one of the this is the, the first movie that's been partly made in space. There's supposed to be a rival American project involving Tom Cruise. We're not quite sure what's happened to it, but uh, but it doesn't. They don't seem to be quite as far along with with, with that one. Um, but uh, yes, all of these, you know, once again, you've just got this idea that space is this sort of you know competitive arena where where everyone's trying to up, one up everyone else. Uh, political footballs in closing. You say the Winter Olympics in Beijing and the Football World Cup in Qatar will be reminders of how sport can bring the world together, but also of how big sporting events often end up being political footballs. Expect protests directed at both host countries, though boycotts by national teams seem unlikely. Indeed. So um, we are going to have these rather contentious um, venues for both the Winter Olympics in Beijing and the World Cup in Qatar. Obviously, it's happening later than usual because you don't want to be outdoors playing football or indeed doing anything at all in Qatar in the summer. So um, so the World Cup has been moved to um, November, December. Um, but uh, yes, in both cases, there have been uh, protests by um, by both activists, but also, you know, we've had football teams um protesting that doesn't mean they're going to pull out of these events and i don't think we're going to see boycotts but i think we may see pressure being put on the sponsors so that's one of the sort of points of leverage that uh the activists in in the west or around the world generally have which is that they can they can put pressure through social media through uh, through through boycotting of products and services on the sponsors of these events and say you know are we sure that that these regimes that have both uh, been criticized for human rights reasons in in different ways uh, are are they really the sorts of um, places that we want to be doing these events and so um so i think we are going to see some controversy around these events but i think the actual uh the sporting part of it will probably be uh relatively unscathed i think the the wild card is you know are we going to see um protests by people on the on the podium uh at the olympics when they when they win are they going to you know unfurl things or, or you know yeah because rest? it had me thinking about beijing and to a certain extent i'm thinking about what was it uh, uh the, the the hitler olympics and whatnot though they're not neatly neatly analogous but there is a very controlled environment exactly, uh, exactly. china is a is a surveillance state to the max they can cut the feed they can do many things and with sponsors if you're talking about multinationals sponsoring the olympics and saying that it's an apolitical event but people are protesting it i also think about uh xi jinping's regime sanctioning the multinationals they at some point make a calculation that you don't want to give up the most important market and on the planet seen, exactly, outside we've of the seen United that. States. We've, we, we have seen exactly that which is where china has um or there have been you know chinese um consumers have boycotted uh, Western companies that they think you know when Western companies say well we're gonna we're gonna stop doing this in China or we're gonna make we're gonna stop using cotton from Xinjiang or whatever and if if they start making too much noise about it they find themselves on the receiving end of um you know boycotts by Chinese consumers or um basically trouble from from the Chinese government so yes we may see um that sort of we may see some companies being put in quite difficult positions by uh, uh, as a result of all of this next year. Tom Standage, close us out. Do you, for example, see Donald Trump? announcing in 2022? Does he want to wait to maybe take credit for a red wave after the 2022 midterm election? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, 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 I think there are quite a lot of factors in determining because as soon as he, as soon as he declares he becomes a candidate and then it constrains him in quite a few ways. Um, and I think he's had this explained to him because he was talking about declaring earlier this year and evidently 
it's been spelt out to him that there are there are good reasons not to just yet. That he is, I mean, everyone knows he's running, right? Um, and um, but once you're a candidate, you have you know rules applied to you that you don't as at the moment in theory just a, as as a private citizen. So um, so yeah, I, I'm not quite sure where where that comes out and wh- where that balance tips for him, and it makes sense. Um, and yeah, and maybe seeing how things go in the midterms will be what determines it. But you know, we we pretty much know what to expect with the midterms because it is a very reliable rule of thumb and yes there is this um, you know inherent um, advantage that the republicans have in the u.s political system just because uh, democratic voters are so clustered in uh, in coastal cities um so so you know i i would be astonished if the um, the midterm elections don't go badly for the democrats um so so does donald trump really need to wait for that i'm not sure he needs to wait for that specific you know piece of information but there may be other factors that mean that it, um, holding off on the on the formal declaration that he's running uh, makes sense. Tom Standage, deputy editor of The Economist and editor of the yearly The World In series. We were talking about the world in 2022. I remember you guys picking out huge strides in in uh, in, in veggie burgers and and uh, you know plant based chicken and everything. And we're talking about these things. And meanwhile, COVID is around the corner. So there's always that proviso that you know we're only human and we can only see so far. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. This show podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can follow and recommend us at fullderadio.com. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>